Well, good morning again, brothers and sisters. The parable before us this morning is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And it is bracketed by a phrase, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. We read this in Matthew 19 in verse 30, right before the parable begins, and then again in Matthew 20, verse 16, it's the phrase with which the parable concludes. These words of Jesus are bookends, then, of the parable, and they give us a bit of a clue as to what the story is about. It is another lesson in what the kingdom of heaven is like, what the rules and the norms are when God is calling the shots, as opposed to the rules and norms of the kingdoms of men. Isaiah the prophet nailed it when he said of God that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. Or as my Bible says in its study notes, in the kingdom of God there are many reversals and the day of judgment will bring many surprises. In today's parable, Jesus goes on to divulge one of those surprises, one of those twists. Now if you have been following along at all with this series, of messages and the parables of our Lord, then you would have noticed, I suspect, that many of the stories that Jesus told have these twists, have some unexpected turn in the plot or in the circumstance or in the outcome. For instance, in a culture that believed prosperity to be a sign of God's blessing and viewed sickness and poverty as a sign of God's curse, no one would have expected that a beggar would be transported to heaven, to Abraham's bosom, while a rich man would be eternally condemned to hell. Along those same lines, no one would have expected a rich man plotting to build bigger barns to accommodate his wealth to have been called a fool, or would have considered it to be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. In a society that, uh, where feasts and banquets were common and the in crowd uh, was invited to sit in places of honor, no one could fathom that the homeless, that the vagabonds, that the, that the uh, cast-offs of society would be sought for in the highways and the byways of life and invited in and given these places of honor. No one would have thought that a prostitute was good company. No one could have believed that a tax collector would be justified in the eyes of God over a Pharisee. The list goes on and on and on. Almost all the stories have some sort of wrinkle. They have some kind of remarkable element that uh, contrasted what was the norm in the culture that caused the listener to listen up. And today's parable is no exception. If you have not yet read the scripture for this morning, then go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 20. If you happen to be new to reading the Bible, then you should know the Bible is divided into two major sections. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. Each of them contains several different books. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way through the entire Bible. 
And when you find Matthew, you will notice that there are some large numbers. Those are the chapter numbers. And you'll see some smaller numbers. Those are the verse numbers. And today we are in Matthew chapter 20. And we're considering verses 1 through 16. So take a moment to read that. If you haven't, hit the pause button if you need to in order to read that scripture. And then when you can, rejoin us. And we will move ahead together. Father, as we sit under your word this morning, we ask always for your blessing. Help us to attend to what you have to say to us. May your words be heard this day, received in our hearts. May they affect the change that you desire for them in us as we seek to be a people who glorifies you in every way. Bless our worship. Bless our time sitting under your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've read that parable, then you've noticed uh, there aren't that many verses, but they've got a lot of moving parts, several characters in there, in fact. And I want to caution you this morning, don't be distracted by all of them, okay? Let me say up front that this parable is called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It could probably more aptly be named the parable of the generous landowner because the owner of the vineyard is the central character in this parable. He's the uh, character around whom the whole thing revolves. And he represents God. And he represents the kingdom of heaven. When we read this parable, we find out a little something about what the kingdom of heaven is like. One thing we learn right off the bat about God in this parable is that he's not fair. That's a shocker, right? And that got you when you read that. Wait a minute, how can this happen? That's not fair. That's not right. That's the shocker, or so you might expect. But maybe the shocker is the fact that God's unfairness is a good thing. It's early in the morning and the grapes have to be harvested. The Vineyard Workers Association has not yet been formed. Uh, and similar to the way that we harvest blueberries in Maine, seasonal workers are needed in order to bring in the crop. So the vineyard owner goes into town, and he finds some men who are looking for work. They are in the market square, and they're waiting for the prospect of employment. Now, maybe you have never seen anything like this. It's, it's an odd image for you. But if you had grown up around the time that I did, if you were a young person in Hancock, Hancock County any time, say, um, in the 1980s or before, you would have seen uh, just such a scene as this. Every July, every August, in front of Merrill's Blueberry Factory on Main Street, you would have seen workers gathered together, huddled, eating Larry's pastries. Some of you will remember that awesome bakery with the best glazed donuts and good muffins and cakes. And we would go over there and we would buy our goodies and come back and wait on the dock, wait to be taken into the fields in order to rake. That was common. In the Dominican Republic, we see this scene as common as well. Men gather in a place and they wait for someone to come by to pick them up, to take them to work if there is work available. And someone inevitably comes by in his Mitsubishi pickup truck, which will hold, to my count, approximately 11 Dominican men in the back of it. 
and that pickup truck will take them to a construction site or out to harvest the sugar cane. In our text, the men are waiting, and the landowner arrives, and he strikes a deal with them. It is about 6 o'clock in the morning, and there is a 12-hour day awaiting. And there is a wage that is agreed to, a denarius for a day. A denarius was a common day's wage, so it was a, a fair deal by market standards. And so the men, they go to work. A little while later, it's around 11 o'clock now, the landowner goes out, he sees more men standing in the marketplace. They're just waiting. And he tells them, if you want to go to work, then you can go to work in my vineyard. No wage is negotiated here. We just read that the master gives his word, go and work, and I'll pay you whatever is right. And so they went. And that scene plays out again at noon. And then at 3 o'clock, and once more at the 11th hour, at 5 o'clock, 60 minutes before quitting time. One wonders why men would be standing in the marketplace at 5 o'clock. Who's going to hire them? The sun is going to be going down soon. The day is just about over. I bet some of you are thinking, maybe when you read it, maybe when I just said it, it's 5 o'clock and they're still waiting. Some of you are thinking they should have gotten there earlier. If they were serious about employment, they would have gotten up and they would have gotten there earlier. Maybe you're thinking, they didn't really want to go to work after all. Maybe you've already decided, these are lazy men. In fact, they just went into town to hang out with some of their friends. They're going to play a little bit of dice. And when it's all said and done, they can tell the old lady that they tried. We know those kind of people, right? Well, that's not in the story. That might be where we go. But that's not in the story. See, the vineyard owner wants to know why they're still standing in the marketplace also. And so he asks. You look at verse 6. Why do you stand here idle all day? Or why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Is what the NIV says. And there comes the answer. Because no one has hired us. See, we can be judgmental of such men, men that we don't even know. But the reason that they're not working isn't because they don't want to work. It's because no one has hired them. It's because their work is contingent upon an offer. Someone has to offer them a job and no one has. And so the owner says to these men, well, come into my vineyard. Go and join the others. It's about an hour later, and the landowner calls the foreman, tells him to gather the workers. He's going to pay them their wages. There's no weekly paycheck back then, right? No biweekly paychecks in this place. You work, you get paid. You work, you get paid. It's a subsistence culture. Every day brings the challenge in this day. Will, will we be able to earn money? Will we be able to get something so that we can eat? This too reminds me of our work in the Dominican Republic, especially those times that we spent working in the hospital in La Romana. You see, at lunchtime, after we had worked several hours, we would take a break and we would all go down to the gazebo. And the meal would be laid out for us. We packed it, we brought it, and then it would be laid out. And all of us workers uh, from America who are considered missionaries would eat 
first. And not only would we eat first, we would eat second before anybody else. That is, it was the tradition there that it would need to be apparent that we had had all of our needs met before any of our colleagues from the Dominican Republic would then get up and avail themselves to any of the leftovers. So after we had gone through first, sometimes after we had gone through two times, so as we got to know these men better, we were just encouraging them, get up and eat with us, let's share a meal. But that wasn't how it started. Only then, when we were fed in full, would they avail themselves of the food. Maybe get some beans and rice, maybe grab a sandwich. And on more than one occasion, friends, I saw men taking sandwiches and not eating them. I saw them putting them in their shirt, tucking them away, because they were not going to eat that sandwich. They were going to bring that sandwich home, and they were going to feed their family with it. It's a way of living that's hard to comprehend for you and I. We are so blessed. We have so much. It's a subsistence living for them. When we go to the Dominican Republic to do construction, we bring money. When there is money, there is work. When there is no money, there is no work. You know, we talk here in this country about living paycheck to paycheck. These fellows in the Dominican, these great pickers in our parable for today, live day to day. We complain sometimes because we don't like our benefits. But for these men, the opportunity just to earn a day's pay is the benefit. The foreman of the vineyard is told to distribute the wages to the men, beginning first with those who had been hired last. You know what that means. That means that the cleanest, the freshest, the best smelling guys are at the head of the line. And they have no idea what they're going to get for their measly effort. They hadn't been at it very long. They've only been out there for an hour. But this is a culture where something is better than nothing. And they're going to get a little something. They're pretty sure of that. They don't know how much you're going to get because they didn't negotiate a price. They simply were told that it would be right. And wonderfully, amazingly, these men receive a denarius. They get a whole day's wage for an hour's worth of work. Now that's the twist, right? There's the twist on the parable. That's the place where, where, where we lean in as listeners. Sometimes we, we listen to a parable and we go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Sometimes we say, oh, that's kind of neat. This is one of those parables where we hear that and we say, what? What happened? This is not normal. This is not sound business practice. This is clearly not a parable about economics. What is going on? Well, the pay situation doesn't go unnoticed down the line. Apparently, it was a pretty big line. Because by the time it got to the men who had been hired first, the men who'd been out there and borne the heat of the sun and labored all day, the expectation had built that their work would be worth much more. Just think, if the guy who comes last and works for an hour gets one denarius, then common sense alone says that the one who came first and worked for 12 hours would, would get one, two, three, 12 denarii, right? But that's not what happened. 
That's not how that, that worked. That's, that's not what happened. When it was their turn to collect, what did they get? They get the exact same pay as the one-hour wonders. They get one denarius. And they began to complain. And if we would see ourselves in the parable as we are meant to do, isn't this where we would be? At least I think this is probably where I would be. Identifying with these poor men who got shortchanged because they'd worked so long and they'd worked so hard. They deserve better, we would say, wouldn't we? They deserve more. They began to grumble against the landowner as we grumble against God when something that we believe we deserve or can't live without is withheld from us. And they're critical of the master. His wage scale, we read in verse 12, his wage scale has made the workers who showed up last equal to them. That's an interesting and telling criticism. Well, the vineyard owner has a foreman who could probably handle labor disputes, but as we have seen through this parable, he seems to be quite a hands-on owner. And he addresses the complainers himself, probably the chief complainer, probably the union organizer. He does it respectfully. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Turns out, despite all the emotion that is stirred up in this parable, the landowner, the vineyard owner, is a just man after all. He is, in fact, a man of his word. He's giving the workers exactly what he said he would give them, exactly what they, they had agreed to and negotiated for in the beginning. That if he's guilty of anything, he's guilty of generosity. And that if he's committed a crime, his crime is blessing people by giving them something they didn't earn. And that, is what God is like. And that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what it's like to live under the rule and the reign of God. Not only does the Lord keep his word, not only does he do what he says he will do, but it's his pleasure to do even more. It is his prerogative, it is his joy to dole out unexpected blessings. Now, there's lots more that could be said about this parable. It is a rich parable. It's a parable that you could preach twice as long as I'm going to on it or maybe even a few sermons about it. It ties in so beautifully with the stories that come before it. And I want to encourage you, go back in Matthew's Gospel. Read Matthew chapter 19. Don't tell me you don't have time. Go back to Matthew 19 and read this story about the rich ruler and what he, what he was looking for, and how Jesus answered him. And then read in between this story of Peter, and how Peter went to Jesus, and he, he wanted to know, well, Jesus, we've given up so much for you. What will our reward be? You'll see how these things all tie in. We're learning about the grace of God here in this section of Matthew. Beautiful section. So there's plenty more to talk about. 
This also has some pretty large implications if you're interested to understand sort of the, the idea of how salvation interacts with one being a Jew and one being a Gentile, the first and the last. It has some smaller applications, but they're probably just as cogent, just as important. For instance, uh, we read in here and can pull out or extract the idea of how vain it is to uh, compare ourselves to others. But so often we do that, don't we? We look at what somebody else has or what somebody else is blessed with and all of a sudden we're envious or we're jealous. We start to think they don't deserve what they have or we ought to be getting more. We get ourselves in all kinds of trouble that way. We also see here again, once again, and having come through the book of Exodus not that long ago, we should be a little sensitive to this, I think, how dangerous it is to complain. What is it that we are saying when, when we don't have enough? Or we feel, or do we really feel that God isn't taking care of us? Or do we worry that he can't even? There's a great danger in complaining. And we have to be so very careful about harboring or, or uh, building up an attitude of ingratitude. I've got to tell you, it's a little disappointing these days to continuously see people complaining about what they don't have what they feel like they were entitled to receive, instead of being thankful for what they do have and what they have received. So even as Christians, we have to be very careful about complaining, especially when it comes to complaining about God. But for our purposes today, I just want to camp out on, on this singular uh, idea, this simple truth that the owner of this world our God is a caring, generous, gracious God. He is caring. He is not indifferent to your suffering right now. He understands it. The scripture tells us that his eye is on the sparrow, that not one sparrow falls, but that he does not know it. How much more is he watching over you? And not just watching over you indifferently, but watching over you because he cares about you. He is caring because he promises to meet your needs. He says that he will meet our needs. Why does the vineyard uh, owner give someone a job at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when quitting time is 6? Because that's what those men needed. They needed a job. Why does he give them a full day's wage when they've only worked one-twelfth of the day? Because that's what they needed. What did they need it for? Not to go buy a four-wheeler or a boat. They need it to eat. They need it to provide for themselves and for their families. And this is what God does. He gives us what we need. And why does he do that? Because he cares about what we need. One of the things that gets us wound up, one of the things that causes the most worry, I think, in our lives, most angst, really, is concern over whether or not or how we will have our needs met. Isn't that true of you? I think it's true of most of us. And yet Jesus tells us very specifically that we ought not to worry. He tells us that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, 33. He talks about, about not being anxious and he wraps it up this way. He says, your heavenly Father knows your needs. Your heavenly Father knows your needs. So just seek Him, is what Jesus says. Seek first His kingdom 
and His righteousness. Seek His rule and reign in your life. Seek to do the right thing. And your needs are going to be taken care of. Your needs will be provided. The Bible says they shall be added unto you. All this stuff that you're worried about. So God is caring and He arranges the universe to see that the needs of His children are taken care of. Secondly, He is generous. He is generous because He gives liberally. He gives more than He has to. In fact, He really doesn't have to give us anything, but He chooses to give because He's a giving God. And He gives more than He has to, first of all, because He can. Because He can. Because you understand that God is giving to us from a limitless supply. There's an endless supply to his riches. Unlike you or I and our bank accounts and the things that we look at, when we know there's an end to them, God is, is drawing from a limitless supply. He, he, he will always be wealthy. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Everything belongs to him. And he's constantly giving out of this limitless supply. So he can give liberally. He doesn't have to worry about bankrupting his business. He can give because he can but it's, it's sweeter than that, beloved. He gives because He wants to. And you understand this. We all understand this. How sweet it is to be able to give something to someone. How much it matters to us at special occasions like anniversaries or birthdays or Christmas where we're able to save up or to find that perfect gift that somebody's going to appreciate so much. We know how, how sweet that is. It is better to give than it is to receive. And God gives because He wants to. He wants to, he, the Bible tells us that He's a giver of good and perfect gifts. He loves us and He wants to bless us with gifts. And so He's generous when He does that. He blesses us. And thirdly, He's gracious. Now grace we know is a word in the Bible that means undeserved favor. God is gracious because what He gives us, we do not deserve. So if we were to see ourselves in this parable, I'd hope we wouldn't see ourselves as the, the workers who were uh, not treated properly, but we would see ourselves as those who have staggered in in the final hours. And yet, because God is good, we shall reap the full reward of all his riches. That's where we are, really. God is gracious. What he gives, we don't deserve. Let's look at two sides of this coin as we wrap it up. What do we deserve? When we think about it, what do we deserve? What does the Bible say about it? Well, the Bible teaches that because of our sin against a holy and a perfect God, and everyone, by the way, sins. The Bible says that. All have sinned, right? Because of our sin against a holy and a perfect God, the Bible teaches that what we deserve is death. The wages of sin, what our sin earns, is death. Furthermore, the scripture teaches that we deserve not only death, but we deserve hell. That we deserve an eternal separation from God because of our sin. That we are unholy. We are sinful. And we cannot make ourselves holy. And we cannot make ourselves sinless. Therefore, we deserve to be expelled from the presence of God eternally. That's what we deserve according to the scripture. Now I don't mean to be offensive here, but I probably will be. This, this is the problem with our, our culture today, or one of the problems in our culture today, where you get a trophy for being you. 
You show up and, and you are rewarded. But that's not what the scripture teaches. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that we aren't valued. But it does mean that we don't deserve a lot of the stuff that we think we do just for being us. What we deserve scripturally, biblically, I'm not trying to, to lower your self-esteem. I'm trying to give you a biblical lens through which to understand yourself and society. What we deserve scripturally is death and hell. But thankfully, that is not how God wants to deal with us. That is not what God is interested in giving to us. It's what we've earned. It's what by rights ought to land on us. But God is willing to to not give us those things, right? Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Or Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That is, Lord, if you truly held against us all of our transgressions, all of our wrongdoings, everything that we have done to offend you, if you held that against us, if you made us carry that weight, God, we couldn't bear up under it. Nobody could stand. But the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. So what do we deserve? We deserve death, we deserve hell, but what do we get? What we get is this, beloved. We get the offer of forgiveness. We get the offer of reconciliation to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. God has given this world His Son. No greater gift that He could have given us. This Son, Jesus, came to earth, took on the form of a man, lived a perfect life. He was truly the only good man ever because He never, ever sinned against God. And Jesus came on purpose, for a purpose, and he told us what it was. It was to give his life a ransom for many. Now catch that. To give his life a ransom for many. Not for all, but for many. And hopefully you're asking, well then for who? Because John tells us, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. Jesus gave his sinless life as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. He was killed, he was buried, and he was raised to life after three days, having satisfied the penalty of sin and overcome death. And if you aren't sure today that your sin has been paid for, if you aren't sure today that you have everlasting life, then simply believe what I'm saying right now. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God is a God who gives what is not deserved. And the greatest proof of that is the gift of His Son. Now the Scriptures encourage everyone to remember God in the days of their youth. You find that in Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. So remember God in the days of your youth. That is the best of all possible worlds. You begin a relationship with God early, and you maintain that relationship until you breathe your last in this earth, and you spend eternity with God. But remember Him in the days of your youth. That's the best possibility. 
That's what it tells us to do. But you know what? It never discourages us from coming to God at any stage in our life. In other words, some of you listening this morning are thinking, well, I missed that train. I, I, am, I am not young. I have spent my life this way, that way, every other way. I've, I've really had nothing to do with God. This probably doesn't have anything to do with me. Listen. The Bible never discourages us from coming to God at any stage in our lives. There's a wonderful story in the scripture of Jesus on the cross. And he's surrounded by two other men. And they are thieves. They are criminals. And they deserve exactly what they're getting. And all one says is, is to Jesus, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, today... You shall be with me in paradise. Today you'll be saved. Why? Because you looked on me. Because you cried to me for help. Because you looked on me for mercy. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what God is like. He's eager to save you at whatever stage of life you find yourself. And I think this too is part of the parable. This is part of God's grace that you should join his work. Come, join his work. Early in the morning, at noontime, in the afternoon, even at the 11th hour. Now, I don't recommend the strategy of waiting to the 11th hour. I think that becomes a bit presumptuous. And I, I know some folks who think that way. Well, I'm just going to live life the way that I want to. And then when I sense myself getting toward the end and things winding down, and I don't have a lot better things to do, I think at that point, then I'll turn to God and, and I'll mosey on in. Well, listen, God is gracious. But let's not presume upon His grace. The reality is you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know if there's even going to be a tomorrow. Now is the time to be right with God. Now is the time to accept his invitation to you to come and work in his vineyard. Now is not the time for you to say that it's too late, that it's past noontime or it's the 11th hour and I really don't have anything to offer. That's not the point. The point is you're, you're, you are being extended the offer to join, to come in. And you're not earning anything. It's all a gift. It's always been a gift. And you can come anytime and reap the full reward. So come. Come and know the blessings, the eternal blessings, of a caring, a generous, and a gracious God.